Chapter 13 of the Complete Works of Artemus Ward, Part 2, War, by Charles Farrar Brown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13, Artemus Ward to the Prince of Wales. Friend Wales, you remember me. I saw you in Canada a few years ago. I remember you too. I seldom forget a person. I heard of your marriage to the Princess Alexandri and meant to writ you a congratulatory letter at the time. But I've been building a barn this summer and ain't had no time to write letters to folks. Excuse me. Numerous changes has taken place since we met in the body politic. The body politic, in fact, is sick. I sometimes think it has got biles, friend Wales. In my country we've got war, while your country, in conjunction with Captain Sims of the Alabama, maintains a neutral position. I'm afraid I can't write jokes when I sit about it. Oh, no, I guess not. Yes, sir, we've got a war, and the true patriot has to make sacrifices. You bet. I have already given two cousins to the war, and I stand ready to sacrifice my wife's brother rather than not see the rebellion crushed. And if worse comes to worse, I'll shed every drop of blood my able-bodied relations has got to prosecute the war. I think somebody ought to be prosecuted, and it may as well be the war as anybody else. When I get a joking fit into me, it's no use to try to stop me. You heard about the draft, friend Wales. No doubt it caused some squirming, but it was fairly conducted, I think, for it hit all classes. It is true that Wendell Phillips, who is a American citizen of African scent, escaped, but so did Vallandigham, who is conservative, and who was recently sent south, though he would have been sent to the dry Tortugas if Abe had supposed for a minute that the Tortugases would keep him. We ain't got any daily paper in our town, but we got a female sewing circle which answers the same purpose and we wasn't long in suspects as to who was drafted. One young man who was drawed claimed to be exempt because he was the only son of a widowed mother who supported him. A few able-bodied dead men was drafted, but whether their heirs will have to pay $300 apiece for them is a question for Whiten, who appears to be tinkering up this draft business right smart. I hope he makes good wages. I think most of the conscripts in this place will go. A few will go to Kennedy, stopping on their way at Concord N.H., where I understand there is a Muslim of hearts. You see, I'm sassy, friend Wales, hitting all sides, but no offense is meant. You know, I ain't a politician and never was. I vote for Mr. Union. That's the only candidate I've got. I claim, howsoever, to have a well-balanced mind though my ideas of a well-balanced mind differs from the ideas of a partner I once had, whose name it was Bilson. Bilson and me organized a strolling dramatic company, and we played the drunkard, or the falling saved, with a real drunkard. The play didn't take particularly, and says Bilson to me, let's give him some immoral drammy. We had a large troupe unto our hands, consisting of eight tragedians and a bass drum. But I says, no, Bilson, and then I says, Bilson, you hain't got a well-balanced mind. Well, says he, yes, I have, old hossfly. He was a low cuss. 
Yes, I have. I have a mind, says he, that balances in any direction that the public requires. That's what I call a well-balanced mind. Yeah, I sold out and bid adieu to Bilson. He is now an outcast in the state of Vermont. The miserable man once played Hamlet. There wasn't any orchestra, and wishing to expire to slow music, he died playing on a clarionet himself, interspersed with heart-rending groans, and such is the world. Alars, alars, how unthankful we air to that providence which kindly allows us to live and borrow money and fail undo business. But to return to our subject, with our recent great triumphs on the Mississippi, the father of waters, and them is waters no father need feel shamed of, twigged the witticism, and the cheering look of things in other places, I reckon we shan't want any Muslim of hearts. And what upon earth do the people of Concord New H want a Muslim of hearts for? Ain't you got a state house now? And what more do you want? But all this is furrin to the purpose of this note, after all. My object in now addressing you is to give you some advice, friend Wales, about managing your wife, a business I've had over thirty years' experience in. You had a good wedding. The papers have a good deal to say about Vikings in connection therewith, not knowin's what they air, and so I frankly tells you, my noble Lord Duke of the Throne, I can't exactly say whether we have em or not. We was both very much uh, frustrated, but I never enjoyed myself better in my life. Doubtless your supper was ahead of iron. As regards eatin' uses, Baldinsville was allers shaky. But you can get a good meal in New York, and cheap, too. You can get half a mackerel at Delmonico's or Mr. Mason Dory's for six dollars, and biled potatoes thrown in. As I said, I manage my wife without any particular trouble. When I first commenced training her, I instituted a series of experiments, and them as didn't work, I abandoned. You better do similar. Your wife may object to getting up and building the fire in the morning, but if you commence with her at once, you may be able to overcome this prejudice. I regret to observe that I didn't commence early enough. I wouldn't have you suppose I was ever kicked out of bed. Not at all. I simply say, in regard to building fires, that I didn't commence early enough. It was a rather cold morning when I first proposed the idea to Betsy, it wasn't well received, and I found myself laying on the floor pretty sudden. I thought I'd get up and build the fire myself. Of course, now you're married, you can eat onions. I always did, and if I know my own heart, I always will. My daughter, who's going on seventeen and is frisky, says they're disgusting. And speaking of my daughter reminds me that quite a number of young men have suddenly discovered that I'm a very entertaining old feller and they visit us frequently, especially on Sunday evenings. One young chap, a lawyer by habit, don't come as much as he did. My wife's father lives with us. His intellect totters a little, and he saves the papers containing the proceedings of our state legislator. The old gentleman likes to read out loud, and he reads tolbo well. He eats hash freely, which makes his voice clear, 
but as he unfortunately has to spell the most of his words, I may say he reads slow. Well, whenever this lawyer made his appearance, I would set the old man a-reading the legislative reports. I kept the young lawyer up one night till uh, twelve o'clock, listening to a lot of acts in regard to a drawbridge away off in the east part of the state, having sent my daughter to bed at half-past eight. He hadn't been there since and I understand he says I go round swindling the public. I never attempted to reorganize my wife but once. I shall never attempt again. I'd been to a public dinner and had allowed myself to be betrayed into drinking several people's healths, and wishing to make them as robust as possible, I continued drinking their healths until my own became affected consequence was i presented myself at betsy's bedside late at night with considerable liquor concealed about my person i had somehow got procession of a horsewhip on my way home and remembering some cranky observations of mrs ward's in the morning i snapped the whip pretty lively and in a very loud voice i said betsy you need reorganizing i have come betsy I continued, cracking the whip over the bed. I have come to reorganize you. Have you parade tonight? I dreamed that somebody had laid a horsewhip over me several consecutive times, and when I woke up I found she had. I, I hain't drank much anything since, and if I ever have another reorganizing job on my hand I shall let it out. My wife is fifty-two years old and has always sustained a good character. She's a good cook. Her mother lived to a venerable age and died while in the act of frying slapjacks for the county commissioners. And may no rude hand pluck a flower from her tombstone. We ain't got any picture of the old lady because she never stands for her ambrotype, and therefore I can't give her likeness to the world through the medium of the illustrated papers. But as she wasn't a brigadier general, particularly, I don't suppose they'd publish it anyhow. It's best to give a woman considerable leeway, but not too much. A neighbor of mine, Mr. Rufus Minkins, was once very sick with the fever, but his wife moved his bed into the dooryard while she was cleaning house. I told Rufus this wasn't the thing, especially as it was raining violently, but he said he wanted to give his wife a little leeway. That was too much. I told Mrs. Minkins that her Rufus would die if he stayed out there into the rain much longer, when she said, It shan't be my fault if he dies unprepared, at the same time tossing him his mother's Bible. It was awful. I stood by, however, and nussed him as well as I could. But I was a pretty wet nurse, I tell you. There's various ways of managing a wife, friend Wales, but the best and only safe way is to let her do just about as she wants to. I adopted that there plan some time ago, and it works like a charm. Remember me kindly to Mrs. Wales, and good luck to you both, and as years roll by and accidents begin to happen to you, among which I hope there'll be twins, you will agree with me that family joys are the only ones a man can bet on with any certainty of winning. It may interest you to know that I'm prospering in a pecuniary point of view. I make about as much in the course of a year as a cabinet officer does, and I understand my business a good deal better than some of them do.
respects to st george and the dragon ever be happy a ward end of chapter thirteen end of the complete works of artemus ward part two war by charles farrar brown